Chef Edward Lee runs Succotash, a fancy southern restaurant in downtown D.C., but he's not originally from the South. I knew nothing about southern food. Probably the extent of my southern food knowledge was fried chicken, you know, like KFC. He was an adult the first time he went to Louisville. Edward was there for the Kentucky Derby, mint julep in hand, taking in the city and the South, and he was immediately hooked. He loved it. The pageantry, the culture, and obviously the food. Edward grew up cooking Korean food with his parents and grandma in their Brooklyn home, but he realized the flavors, textures, and cooking techniques he found in Kentucky reminded him of the food he had back in New York. Collard greens reminds me of a seaweed soup that I ate as a kid. Um, like grits remind me of congee. Edward loved Louisville so much that he moved there, opening one restaurant, then a second, and a third, putting his own spin on Southern food. Except Edward says there's some debate over whether Louisville is really the South at all. Louisville lives in this sort of borderline existence, right? It's like some of it's the South, and even people in Louisville will tell you, like some of it's the South, some of it's kind of the Midwest. You know, some of it's a little bit Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, some of it is, is international, you know. And, and so it has a, an identity crisis. And he felt the same confusion when he moved to D.C. to open Succotash. He's even developed his own litmus test for D.C.'s identity. If I'm in a room full of people, I always go, like say, hey, uh, how many people think this is a southern city? A third of the people raise their hand. And, I, and then I go, how many people think this is a northern city? And a third of the people raise their hand. And I go, how many people have no idea what I'm talking about? And a third of the people raise their hand. I get it. D.C. has kind of a split identity. It's south of the Mason-Dixon line, for example, but we're part of the big northeast megalopolis. Yeah, we're missing a lot of the stuff people recognize as southern, even if it's a bit of a stereotype. Sure, you can order grits at a local diner, but where are the waffle houses? Where do people start drinking sweet tea and saying y'all? This is Dish City from WAMU. I'm Ruth Tam. And I'm Patrick Fort. There are a handful of foods in D.C. that feel Southern. We love blue crabs and fried fish in a way that reminds me of how New Orleanians love crawfish and gumbo. But I personally don't think of our city in terms of its relationship to the Mason-Dixon line or the way history has gifted D.C. a pretty complicated legacy. On this episode, what can D.C.'s Southern and soul food tell us about how we deal with the city's heritage and history? We start with a field trip to Succotash, Edward Lee's DC restaurant. I think the place feels Southern, at least to this Pennsylvanian. It's inside an old bank, so it's got these high ceilings and wrought iron railings. Super historic looking. Hi, table. We collards, kimchi, and country ham. We order fried catfish and two types of chicken to share with our friend Gabe. I am a big fan of fried chicken in general. Because it is a sort of like special treat food to me. It's really hard to beat fried chicken that is done really well, I think. Gabe moved to D.C. from Louisville, where he lived for years. He often writes about Southern culture for Bitter Southerner. It's really difficult to say, I think, what is or isn't Southern. Some of Gabe's first impressions of what was quintessentially South came from history books. I remember there was a moment when I got really into history and really into Civil War history and really confused about the celebrations of the South based on everything that, that I had read. He grew up in the land of Lincoln, in a place called Muscoota, Illinois. It's a part of the state that's closer to St. Louis than it is to Chicago. I remember being in high school and there were a lot of Confederate flag bumper stickers on cars, and I always thought that was kind of funny that you'd have a land of Lincoln license plate and then a rebel flag right next to it. In my mind, that identification with 
not with the South as a region, but with the sort of the rebels uh, and the Confederacy was really, really discomforting. I grew up in northern Illinois. Slavery and racism certainly aren't limited to the South, but the first time I remember learning about the South as a region, it was in reference to the Constitutional Conventions and how the southern states fought for the Three-Fifths Compromise, using enslaved people to boost their representation, all the while denying them basic human rights and holding on to slavery for nearly another century. For people that grew up outside of the geographic and cultural South, the region is defined exclusively by slavery, despite the fact that its legacy affects us all. I feel like when I first started seeing Southern restaurants like cool Southern restaurants rising up, I got really upset because I was like, what are you trying to do here? Like, are you trying to completely, like, are you trying to celebrate the South, which has a lot of baggage and is going to take a whole lot to unpack here? Or are you trying to separate the food totally from the South? At Succotash, Edward Lee's menu reflects his hazy, overlapping idea of what the South is. His food highlights ingredients native to the region or dishes tied to newer Southern communities. His food isn't strictly white Southerner, it's intersectional. That's in stark contrast to celebrity chefs who remove the context from Southern cooking so they can make it part of their personal brand instead. Like, who's to say if we look like hundreds of years from now, would people look at what Paula Deen does and think like, oh, that was Southern food? Perhaps it's easier for someone like Edward Lee, someone who's not from the South and doesn't necessarily claim it, to experiment with traditional food. It kind of makes sense. I mean, moving someplace new doesn't mean you assume all responsibility for all the legacy and history that a place has. But the thing is, D.C.'s Southern legacy isn't exactly distant history. Let's go down a bit of a rabbit hole into the wide world of sports. This is Ralph Guillaume of the Russian Redskins introducing Hail to the Redskins. It's 1965. Washington's football team is 6-8, and eight, and James Blackstone sits down to write a letter to Edward Williams, the team's acting president. Here's his son Kevin reading the letter. I am writing this letter to you on behalf of the thousands of Negro supporters and fans of the Washington Redskins. James Blackstone was a big fan of the team, but the team's marching band, he said, was a major problem. Sunday after Sunday, they include in their repertoire Dixie, a song that is most repulsive to Negroes. The performance also included Confederate flags instead of the American flag. Their rendition of this composition is greeted by boos and catcalls from the Negroes, and in the stands sometimes causes racist epithets to be made. Washington was the last team in the NFL to integrate, only a few years before James Blackstone wrote his letter. They held out because the team's owner openly did not want black players on his team. The NAACP protested over the team's lack of integration, and then neo-Nazis counter-protested its integration. But Dixie and the flags remained, and Blackstone had had enough. Let's make the Negro patron feel really welcome in 1965 and not accept his $6 admission fee and then publicly insult him. Very truly yours, James B. Blackstone. The team still embraced symbols of the Confederacy long after the Civil War had ended. I mean, I knew the team's name was problematic, but I didn't know the specific ways D.C. fought civil rights and integration like other parts of the South. Williams, the acting team president, responded to James Blackstone's complaint. The team stopped playing Dixie in their fight song. But even now, the city's connection to this part of Southern history is still very present. Here's James' son, Kevin. Oh, D.C. is definitely the South. 
I mean, look, you can go to Georgetown University right on M Street before you go across the Key Bridge. There's a small liquor store, Dixie Liquors. It's still there. I think in recent history, people forget D.C. is the South, is what I would say. University of Maryland professor Psyche Williams-Forsen researches food and the history of African-American migration in the 19th and 20th centuries. If someone tells her D.C. is not the South, she's got one response. Well, what are you eating in D.C. comes the question, right? And where are you eating? If you grew up in parts of black Washington, you may have eaten at a meat and three. You may have dug into fried croaker or whiting at your corner diner. It may have called itself soul food for decades. But white Washingtonians might have had a different experience. Food historian Michael Twitty saw this firsthand when he was growing up in D.C. When we were in the home ec class, our teacher asked us, well, what do you have for dinner? <laughs> what do you eat for dinner? What do you drink with dinner? And all the black kids go, oh, Kool-Aid, iced tea. And the white kids were astonished. They were just like, well, we have milk and we have this and we were just sitting at, we, I remember we were kind of almost self-surrogated, and we were just kind of like nodding in agreement that we had never touched veal. We never ate Brussels sprouts. What the hell was that? You know, we didn't eat these things. And they just started saying all these foods that we just looked at each other and was like, no, no one eats that. No human eats that. I mean, it was, it was the most ethnocentric moment I had ever had. You know, Michael wrote a book called were, The Cooking Gene about African-American culinary history. Black migrants don't often get enough credit for being the bearers of Southern culture and Southern mores and values and ideas about what is good, what is bad, what's tasty, what's not tasty. What we know as Southern food has deep roots in African cooking traditions. Sweet potatoes, early enslaved people needed a substitute for cassava from West Africa. Once in America, what varied most among cooks were the ingredients and preparation. The fancier ingredients, a nice cut of meat or the flour needed to bake a cake, those were reserved for white plantation owners, while enslaved African-Americans and poor white Southerners made do with the food seen as inferior. Fattier cuts of pork, sweet potatoes, black-eyed peas. Food becomes very divisive, right? And it presents histories that are very ugly and histories that are very revealing in ways that we often don't want to confront. After the Civil War, many African Americans migrated out of the rural South and into cities like D.C. They brought a lot of elements of Southern cooking with them, but retrofitted some of the recipes for small apartments and hectic city life. Restaurants and street vendors started serving down-home cooking in the early 1900s, offering a taste of the rural South to anyone who didn't have space to prepare like a whole fried chicken or perhaps didn't own an oven to bake a pie. Most of these businesses were owned and operated by African Americans. I mean, we just have to jump into it. The, the idea of Southern is often held captive by white people. Down-home cooking became fashionable just as the civil rights era began in the 1950s and 60s. And by then, it was time for a new name, Soul Food. After the break, we go out for Soul Food at one of the oldest diners in D.C. Hello, it's Ponzi from the podcast department at WAMU. Next week, we're releasing the final episode of Dish City Season 1, and it's been really fun. If you've enjoyed learning more about city change and D.C.'s iconic foods, show your support today by becoming a member at WAMU.org and leave us a comment about Dish City while you're there. Thanks so much. The walls of the Florida Avenue Grill in Northwest D.C. are covered with so many photos that they might as well be wallpaper. 
the faces of everyone from former DC Mayor Marion Barry to soul singer Jesse James. Well, we're sitting at the booth that uh, Martin Luther King used to plan the March on Washington. We're talking with the grill's owner, Amar Hutchins, and we're in a booth in the middle of the restaurant where a little plaque notes Dr. King's historic visit. The Florida Avenue Grill opened in 1944 and claims to be the longest continually open black-owned business in the United States. The grill serves soul food, a term that originated during the black power movement in the mid-20th century. It was used to reclaim the role black Americans played in forming southern food. It's basically the food that was the food that was eaten by the slaves. You know, it's that's that's what it's known as, the the food of that African American historical cultural experience. So on the menu there are plenty of foods that you could classify as both soul and southern. Sweet tea, grits, collard greens, fried chicken. But there are a couple that feel distinctly soul, like pig's feet and chitlins. Chitlins became a defining feature of down-home and later soul food. But to understand why, you have to understand that chitlins are a lot of work. You have to clean each pig intestine meticulously, soak them, boil them. The whole process does not fit neatly into a small city apartment. So if you lived in a city and you wanted chitlins, you probably had to go out to eat. And the restaurant you went to was probably a soul food spot, like the Florida Avenue Grill. We lose on every plate that we sell. And we just still sell them just because. We may be the only place that still sells them in town. We had a problem getting them at all. We, we, we thought we were going to have to organize a truck and go down south to buy a pallet or something of them because people stopped carrying them and now, you know, it's, so we have supply chain issues <laughs> that nobody else has. I mean, we just have... Serving chitlins is a conscious choice for Amar. It's part of preserving the Florida Avenue Grill's identity as a soul food joint. And that's what our ancestors did. They took things that didn't necessarily taste good or like the, the worst cuts of the meat and the, the less desirable foods and put their soul into it and made it taste good anyway. You know, I just see us as kind of like stewards of that tradition. Amar sees himself as a steward of the neighborhood, too. When he bought the grill, he took its parking lot and turned it into condos. The grill needs reinforcements if it's going to last for years to come, but when it comes to what it looks and feels like, he keeps it the same. But it was important to me to keep the grill. I think it's kind of um, an example of the fact that development doesn't have to mean uh, destruction of what was there before. I think it's easy to forget when you look at the food on your plate, how many people have been cooking the ingredients and the dish. And in the case of Southern and soul food, they've both been through a lot. DC has this split Southern identity because even though it's Southern through its history, it's now more seen as global and metropolitan and therefore removed from its regional identity. Living in this city allows us a certain amount of distance from the slavery and racism that a lot of people think of when they think South because that definition is based on the rural South and plantations. But the South, the region, and the food has always been more nuanced than the narrative people assign to it. Southern food is, is the convergence of three 
big cultures, European culture, African, African culture, and the Native American culture. Uh, only one of those cultures got to write the history of it. Chef Edward Lee, who owns Succotash. So when you talk about an accurate history, there is none. Um, and I think that's what we're trying to do right now. And I think that's what, you know, people like Michael Twitty um, are writing about it right now. And they're trying to revisit history. How are we coming to grips with the fact that um, there was no accurate history? There's so many things that were left unsaid, undocumented, unwritten. And, um, you know, that's, that's a huge part of food writing right now is to go back and say, okay, can we now go back and tell a more realistic story? Food historian Michael Twitty, author of The Cooking Gene. Um, I love it when tour guides say that the, that bridge... Um, that the bridge from the Potomac from Alexandria to D.C. is the divide of the north and the south, as if, you know, you cross the river and things are amazingly any different, you know, when you clearly, when you can go through Georgetown and people who are, are novices will walk through Georgetown, oh, this is so quaint, not realizing that the, the little houses and buildings behind those big houses were the slave quarters. I think it's erasing the experience of millions of people and it's absolving responsibility for something that impacts food culture. People don't get it. They don't understand that the food culture goes hand in hand with other social factors. You can't split D.C.'s food and culture neatly into northern and southern parts, but when it comes to soul food, that labeling is important. Especially in Chocolate City or what's more like Chocolate Chip City now. Plus, as D.C. gets wealthier and pricier, it kind of feels at odds with soul food, which was born out of making the most with very meager ingredients. Black spaces go poof. Um, and then somehow, some way, someone else will come in and say, here's the barbecue, here's the you know remastered cuisine of the South, as if it's someplace else. But I think there's also room for the food to grow and evolve, regardless of your relationship with the South. I mean, look what Amar's doing to keep the grill open for the future. Yeah, look at what Edward Lee's trying to do, integrating Korean dishes with Southern techniques. Historian Psyche said it's important to pull at all the threads that have gotten lost throughout history. Those who um, are from Asian countries, those who are from uh, South American and Latino, you know, country, you know, who identify as Latino, we have completely left out portions of people as if they never existed. It comes down to a black and white conversation, which I think is unfortunate. I feel like once you get into food history and in particular Southern food history, at least for D.C., there's a lot of really important backstory, but it can get really weighty really fast. Right, because so much of, like, Southern and soul food was, like, created out of this, like, really horrible thing that happened in history that you kind of have to, like, accept what comes with, like, eating it and knowing that history without kind of glossing over everything that happened. Right. I think we've discussed a lot over the course of the season that food doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not delicious just for tastiness's sake. You know, there's history and legacy behind everything that we consume. And I think for this region, Washington, D.C., surrounding states, Maryland and Virginia, we're all kind of having this ongoing conversation about what it means to grapple with history. And we've seen that with roads being renamed, highways being renamed, statues coming down. Maybe that's what we're seeing with Southern and Soul Food. 
Ditch City is produced by me, Patrick Ford. And me, Ruth Tam. We did a lot of research for this episode, and in particular, Michael Twitty's book, The Cooking Gene, was an invaluable resource. And we also read Soul Food by Adrian Miller. Kevin Blackestone reads his father's letter to the Washington football team in the documentary called Dixie. If you want to talk to us online, find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dish City. And our email is dishcity at wmu.org. If you want to talk to us in person, we'll be hanging out at local bars and restaurants around the district the Tuesday after each episode drops. On Tuesday, October 22nd, we'll be posting up at Busboys and Poets in Anacostia from 6 to 8 p.m. Shout out to our team at WAMU and beyond. Our editor is Ponzi Rutch. Our associate producer is Julia Karen. Our theme music is by Daniel Peterschmidt and Ben Privet mixes the show. WAMU's general manager is JJ Yor and Andy McDaniel oversees all of the content that we make here. If you love Dish City, share it with a friend and rate us in your favorite podcast app. It'll help new listeners find our show. We'll be back next week with our last episode. So hit that subscribe button. See ya. Bye.